0: Chapter Eighteen of the Witch of Salem This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elvira The Witch of Salem, by john R. Musick. Chapter Eighteen Superstition Reigns. The awful tragedy was through, and friends and enemies withdrew. Some smite their breasts and trembling say, Unlawful deeds were done to-day. Paxton After the escape of mrs Stevens and Cora Waters, a wave of superstition swept over the village of Salem with such irresistible fury that it seemed in greater danger than the frontier settlements did from the french and indians the nurse family and all their relatives came in for a greater share than any other mrs cloisy was second of the family to be accused by paris and his minions mrs cloisy drew ill will upon herself at the outset by doing as her brother and sister nurse did they all absented themselves from the examinations in the church and when the interruptions of the services became too flagrant from Sabbath worship. They declared that they took that course because they disapproved of the permission given to the profanation of the place and the service. At last Mrs. Cloisy, or Goody Cloisy, as she was called in the records of the day, was arrested. Mary Easty and Elizabeth Proctor were also arrested. Mary Easty, sister of Mrs. Nurse, was tried and condemned. On her condemnation and sentence she made an effective memorial while under sentence of death and fully aware of the hopelessness of her case addressing the judges the magistrates and the reverend ministers imploring them to consider what they were doing and how far their course in regard to accused persons was inconsistent with the principles and rules of justice i ask nothing for myself she said i am satisfied with my own innocence and certain of my doom on earth and my hope in heaven. What I do desire is to induce the authorities to take time, and to use caution in receiving, and strictness in sifting testimony, and so shall they ascertain the truth, and absolve the innocent, the blessing of God being upon your conscious endeavours. No effect was produced by her warnings or remonstrances. Before setting forth from the jail to the witch's hill on the day of her death, she serenely bade farewell to her husband and children, and many of her friends, some of whom afterwards related that her sayings were so serious, religious, distinct, and affectionate, as could well be expressed, drawing tears from the eyes of all present. The subject of witchcraft grew more interesting after the execution of Mary Eastie, and to examine Elizabeth Proctor and Sarah Cloisy, or Cloyce, as Mr. Bancroft spells the name, the deputy governor and five magistrates went to Salem. It was a great day. Several ministers were present, Paris officiated, and, by his own record, it is plain that he himself elicited every accusation. His first witness, John, the West India Negro servant, husband to Tituba, was rebuked by Sarah Cloyce as a grievous liar, Abigail Williams, the niece to Paris, was also at hand with her wonderful tales of sorcery. She swore she had seen the prisoner at the witch's sacrament. Struck with horror at such bold perjury, Sarah Cloisy called for water, and swooned away before it could be brought her. Upon this, Abigail Williams, her brother's wife, Sarah Williams, Paris's daughter, and Anne Putnam, shouted— Her spirit is gone to prison to her sister. Against Elizabeth Proctor, Abigail Williams related stories that were so foolish that one wonders how any sensible person could believe them. Among other things, she told how the accused had invited her to sign the devil's book. Dear child, exclaimed the accused, in her agony, it is not so. There is another judgment, dear child, and her accuser's turning toward her husband, declared that he, too, was a wizard. All three were committed. Examinations and commitments multiplied. Giles Corey, a stubborn old man of more than fourscore years, could not escape the malice of his minister and his angry neighbors, with whom he had quarreled. Paris had had a rival in George Burrows, a graduate of Harvard College, who, having formerly preached in Salem Village, had friends there desirous of his return. He was a sceptic on the subject of witchcraft, and Paris determined to have his revenge on him, and, through his many agents and instruments, had him accused and committed. Thus far there had been no success in obtaining confessions, though earnestly solicited. It had been strongly hinted that a confession was an avenue of safety. At last— Deliverance Hobbs owned everything that was asked of her, and left unharmed. The gallows was to be set up, not for those who professed themselves witches, but for those who rebuked the delusion. On May 14th the new charter and the royal governor arrived in Boston. On the next Monday the charter was published, and the parishioner of Cotton Mather with the royal council was installed in office. The triumph of Cotton Mather was complete. A court of Oyer and Terminer was immediately instituted by ordinance, and the positive, overbearing Stoughton was appointed by the governor and council as its chief judge, with Sewell and Waite Winthrop, two feebler men, as his associates. By the 2nd of June the court was in session at Salem, making its experiment on Bridget Bishop, a poor and friendless old woman. The fact of witchcraft was assumed as notorious. To fix it on the prisoner, Samuel Parris, who had examined her before her commitment, was the principal witness to her power of inflicting torture. He had seen it exercised. Then came the testimony of the bewitched, and a terrible mess of stuff it was. One, on reading it, might suppose that all the inmates of Bedlam— had been summoned into court to give their personal experience in the land of insanity. Many of the witnesses testified that the shape of the prisoner often grievously tormented them, by pinching, choking, or biting them, and did otherwise seriously afflict them, urging them all the while to write their names in a book, which the spectre called Our Book. Sarah Williams, who was devotedly attached to Mr. Parris and his cause, swore that it was the shape of this prisoner, with Cora Waters, which one day took her from her wheel, and, carrying her to the riverside, threatened to drown her if she did not sign the book mentioned, which she yet refused to do. Others said that the witch in her shape, that is, appearing to them in a spiritual body invisible to any, save the parties before whom she would appear, boasted that she had ridden John Bly, having first changed him into a horse. One testified to seeing ghosts of dead people, who declared that Bridget Bishop had murdered them. While the examination of the accused was in progress, the bewitched seemed extremely tortured. If she turned her eyes on them, they were struck down. While they lay in swoons or convulsions, THE POOR OLD WOMAN WAS MADE TO TOUCH THEM, AND THEY IMMEDIATELY SPRANG TO THEIR FEET. SAMUEL PARIS HAD HIS MINIONS WELL TRAINED. ON ANY SPECIAL ACTION OF HER BODY, SHAKING OF HER HEAD, OR THE TURNING OF HER EYES, THEY IMITATED HER POSTURE, AND SEEMED UNDER SOME STRANGE SPELL. EVIDENCE WAS GIVEN THAT ONE OF THE BEWITCHED PERSONS PERSUADED A MAN TO STRIKE AT THE SPOT WHERE THE SHAPE OF THIS BISHOP STOOD, and the bewitched cried out, "'You have tore her coat!' and it was found that the woman's dress was torn in the very place. Deliverance Hobbs, who had confessed to being a witch, now testified that she was tormented by the spectres for her confession, and she now testified that this bishop tempted her to sign the book again, and to deny what she had confessed.' It was the shape of this prisoner, she declared, which whipped me with iron rods, to compel me thereunto, and I furthermore saw Bridget Bishop at a general meeting of the witches in a field at Salem Village, where they partook of a diabolical sacrament in bread and wine, then ministered. John Cook testified, About five or six years ago, one morning, about sunrise, I was in my chamber, assaulted, by the shape of this prisoner, which looked on me, grinned at me, and very much hurt me with a blow on the side of their head, and on the same day, about noon, the same shape walked into the room where I was, and an apple strangely flew out of my hand. Samuel Gray testified, About fourteen years ago I waked on a night, and saw the room wherein I lay full of light. Then I plainly saw a woman between the cradle and the bedside, which looked upon me. I rose, and it vanished, though I found all the doors fast. Looking out at the entry door, I saw the same woman in the same garb again, and I said, "'In God's name, what do you come for?' I went to bed, and had the same woman again assaulting me. The child in the cradle gave a great screech, and the woman disappeared. It was long before the child could be quieted, and though it was a very likely thriving child, yet from this time it pined away, and after diverse months died in a sad condition. I knew not Bishop then, nor her name, but when I saw her after this, I knew her by her countenance and apparel and all circumstances that it was the apparition of this Bishop which had thus troubled me. John Bly testified, "'I bought a sow of Edmund Bishop, the husband of the prisoner, and was to pay the price agreed upon to another person. This prisoner, being angry that she was thus hindered from fingering the money, quarrelled with me, soon after which the sow was taken with strange fits, jumping and leaping and knocking her head against the fence.' She seemed blind and deaf and could not eat, whereupon my neighbour, John Lowder said he believed the creature was overlooked, and there were sundry other circumstances concurred which made me believe that Bishop had bewitched it. The examining magistrates asked Bly, "'Have you ever been transformed by the prisoner?' "'I have,' Bly answered. "'When was it?' "'Last summer.' One night, as I was coming home late, the shape of the prisoner came at me. She shook a bridle over my head, and I became a horse. Then she mounted me, rode me several leagues, and the bridle was removed, and I lay in my bed. John Lowder, another acquaintance of Charles Stevens, was called next. John had had his experience with witches. He was an ardent admirer of Mr. Paris, and one of his emissaries— Lauda, Bly, and, in fact, all of Paris's tools, were ignorant, bigoted, and superstitious. They could be made to believe anything the pastor would tell them. Lauda testified, "'I had some little controversy with Bishop about her fowls. Going well to bed, I did awake in the night by moonlight, and did see clearly the likeness of this woman grievously oppressing me, in which miserable condition she held me, unable to help myself till near day. I told Bishop of this, but she denied it, and threatened me very much. Quickly after this, being at home on a Lord's Day, with the doors shut about me, I saw a black pig approach me, at which I, going to kick, it vanished away. Immediately after sitting down, I saw a black thing jump in at the window, and come and stand before me. The body was like that of a monkey, the feet like a cock's, but the face was much like a man's. I was so extremely affrighted that I could not speak. This monster spoke to me and said, "'I am a messenger sent unto you, for I understand that you are in some trouble of mind, and if you be ruled by me, you shall want nothing in this world.' WHEREUPON I endeavoured to clap my hands upon it, but I could feel no substance, and it jumped out of the window again, but immediately came in by the porch, though the doors were shut, and said, "'You had better take my counsel.' Whereupon I struck at it with my stick, but struck only the ground cell, and broke my stick. The arm with which I struck was presently disenabled, and it vanished away." I presently went out the porch door and spied this bishop, in her orchard, going toward her house, but I had not the power to set one foot toward her. Whereupon, returning into the house, I was immediately accosted by the monster I had seen before, which goblin was now going to fly at me, whereat I did cry out, "'The whole armour of God be between me and you!' so it sprang back and flew over the apple-tree, shaking many apples off the tree in its flying over. At its leap it flung dirt with its feet against my stomach, whereon I was then struck dumb, and so continued for three days together. The records of the case on trial shows that William Stacy testified. I received money of this bishop for work done by me, and I was gone but a matter of three rods from her when, looking for my money, I found it unaccountably gone from me. Some time after, Bishop asked me if my father would grind her grist for her. I demanded why not? Because folks count me a witch. I answered, No question but he will grind it for you. Being gone about six rods from her, with a small load in my cart, suddenly the off-wheel stumped and sank down into a hole, upon plain ground, so that I was forced to get help for the recovering of the wheel. But stepping back to look for the hole which might give me this disaster, there was none at all to be found. Some time after, I was waked in the night, but it seemed as light as day, and I perfectly saw the shape of this bishop in the room, troubling me, but upon her going out all was dark again. When I afterward charged Bishop with it, she did not deny it, but was very angry. Quickly after this, having been threatened by Bishop, as I was again in a dark night, going to the barn, I was very suddenly taken, or lifted from the ground, and thrown against a stone wall. After that I was hoisted up, and thrown down a bank at the end of my house. After this, again passing by this bishop, my horse, with a small load, striving to draw, all his gears flew to pieces, and the cart fell down, and I going to lift a bag of corn of about two bushels could not budge it. The foregoing is a sample of the testimony on which people were hung. We have given these that the reader may see what firm hold Mr. Paris and superstition had on the people. We could give page after page of this testimony, but the above is sufficient. If the reader wants a fuller account of the trials of Bishop, Martin, or any of the unfortunates who suffered death at Salem during the reign of superstition, we refer them to the collections of Cotton Mather in his Invisible World. From that book we quote the following information as elicited by the examination in case of Susanna Martin at Salem, June 29, 1692. Magistrate Pray what ails these people? Martin I don't know. Magistrate But what do you think of them? Martin I don't desire to spend my judgment upon it. Magistrate Don't you think they are bewitched? Martin No, I do not think they are. Magistrate, tell us your thoughts about them. Martin, no, my thoughts are my own, when they are in, but when they are out, they are another's, their master. Magistrate, their master? Whom do you think is their master? Martin, if they be dealing in the black art, you may know as well as I. Magistrate, well, what have you done toward this, Martin? Nothing at all. Magistrate, why tis you or your appearance, Martin? I cannot help it. Magistrate, if it be not your master, how comes your appearance to hurt these? Martin, how do I know? He that appeared in the shape of Samuel a glorified saint, may appear in any one's shape. No wonder that a writer, having occasion to examine into the evidence a few years ago, and commenting on it, should exclaim, Great God! and is this the road our ancestors had to travel in the pilgrimage in quest of freedom and Christianity? Are these the misunderstood doctrines of total depravity, Reverend Mr. Noyes, seemed to rival Mr. Paris in the persecution of witches. "'You are a witch! You know you are!' he said to Sarah Good, while urging her to confession. "'You are a liar,' the poor woman replied, "'and if you take my life, God will give you blood to drink.' Confessions became important in the prosecutions. Some, not afflicted before confession, were so presently after it. The jails were filled, for fresh accusations were needed to confirm the confessions. Mr. Hale says, Some, by these their accusations of others, hoped to gain time, and get favour from the rulers. Some of the inferior sort of people did ill offices, by promising favour thereby, more than they had ground to engage. Some, under these temptations, regarded not, as they should, what became of others, so that they could thereby serve their own turns. Some have since acknowledged so much. If the confessions were contradictory, if witnesses uttered apparent falsehoods, the devil, the judges would say, takes away their memory and imposes on their brain. Who, under such circumstances, would dare to be sceptical or refused to believe the confessors. Already twenty persons had been put to death for witchcraft. Fifty-five had been tortured, or terrified into penitent confessions. With accusations, confessions increased. With confessions, new accusations. Even the generation of the children of God were in danger of falling under that condemnation. The jails were full. One hundred and fifty prisoners awaited trial. Two hundred more were accused or suspected. It was also observed that no one of the condemned confessing witchcraft had been hanged. No one that confessed and retracted a confession had escaped either hanging or imprisonment for trial. No one of the condemned who asserted innocence, even if one of the witnesses confessed to perjury, or if the foreman of the jury acknowledged the error of the verdict, escaped the gallows. Favouritism was shown in listening to accusations which were turned aside from friends or partisans. If a man began a career as a witch-hunter, and, becoming convinced of the imposture, declined the service, he was accused and hanged. Samuel Parris had played a strong hand, and was more than successful his harvest of vengeance seemed to have no end. Witches hill became a Tyburn hill, and as many as eight were hung at one time. Matters had at last gone too far. The delusion reached its climax in the midsummer of 1692, and on the second Wednesday in October following, about a fortnight after the last hanging at Salem, the representatives of the colony assembled, and the people of Andover, their minister joining with them, appeared with their remonstrance against the doings of which tribunals. We know not, they said, who can think himself safe if the accusation of children and others under a diabolical influence shall be received against persons of good fame. The discussions which ensued were warm, for Mr. Parris had defenders, even in the legislature, who denounced Charles and Hattie Stevens as murderers and exercisers of the black art. The general court did not place itself in direct opposition to the advocates of the trials. It ordered a bill by a convocation of ministers that the people might be led in the right way as to witchcraft. The reason for doing it, and the manner, was such that the judges of the court, so wrote one of them, "'Consider themselves thereby dismissed.' As to legislature, it adopted what King William rejected, the English law, word for word, as it was enacted by a house of commons in which Coke and Bacon were the guiding minds. But they abrogated the special court and established a tribunal by statute. Phipps had, instantly on his arrival, Employed his illegal court in hanging witches. The representatives of the people delayed the first assembling of the legal court till January of the following year. Thus, an interval of more than three months from the last executions gave the public mind security and freedom. Though Phipps conferred the place of chief judge on Stoughton, yet jurors, representing the public mind, had acted independently. When the court met at Salem, six women of Andover, at once renouncing their confessions, treated the witchcraft but as something so-called, the bewildered but as seemingly afflicted. A memorial of like tenor came from the inhabitants of Andover. More than one-half of the cases presented were dismissed, and, though bills were found against twenty-six persons, The trials showed the feebleness of the testimony on which others had been condemned. The minds of the juries had become enlightened, even before the prejudiced judges. The same testimony was produced, and there at Salem, with Stoughton on the bench, verdicts of acquittal followed. One of the parties acquitted on this occasion was an old acquaintance. Mr. Henry Waters, who had been arrested for his brother— and taken to Virginia, suddenly appeared in Salem. John Lowder at once cried out against him, and caused him to be arrested. On being arraigned, he pled not guilty, and was put on his trial. John Lowder was the principal witness. He stated that one day he and Bligh were hunting, and that defendant pursued them, and bewitched their guns. Then he testified that he fired a silver bullet, and wounded the defendant. He also testified to his appearing before him on the evening he went to stalk deer, and offering him a book to sign. It was known that the accused had suffered from a wound. Mr. Waters then proceeded to explain. My name is Henry Waters, and in early life my brother and I were players— We were members of the Church of England, and detested the Catholic religion. The end of Charles II was drawing near, and we reasoned that James II, his brother, would become heir to the throne. Our only hope was to organize a strong party and seize the throne for the Duke of Monmouth. I was sent to the American colonies to secure pledges of support, and get the names of all who would resist a papal monarch on my book. I came, leaving my brother and his child in England. On the way here, I was suddenly fired upon by an Indian in ambush, and wounded in the side. As these men were stalking a deer, I passed along and affrighted the animal, so it ran away, and I was, for this, accused of being a wizard. He was then asked by the examining magistrate if he did offer a book to Mr. John Lowder to sign. I did, he quickly answered. When was it? At the time and place he states. What book was it? I have it here, and he produced a small red-backed blank book. This has caused so much trouble. Examine it, and you will see. It was to contain only the names of those who would resist the accession of the Duke of York to the throne. The book was passed around to the judge and jury, and a smile dawned on the face of each, which was dangerous to the friends of the prosecution. That book would have hung Henry Waters during the reign of James the Second, but now it was his salvation. He was one of the first acquitted. The delusion was on the wane. Error died among its worshippers. End of Chapter 18